Today the message is rated PG-13 because of the content, and I let parents know ahead of time, and just want to remind you parents that uh, this is um, because of the content of sexuality, like to let parents know because parents like to talk with their kids. And you know what? I hope everybody will end up talking about God's perspective on sexuality um, after the message today. So here we go. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 27, and that's going to be on page 217 or on page 309 if you've grabbed one of the Pew Bibles, because we have two different versions of the, uh, not a Pew Bible, but the Bridge Bible. I slip into old patterns. That one goes back a ways. Maybe you remember in May of 2010... Tropical storm Agatha swept through Guatemala City, leaving a gigantic sinkhole 330 feet deep. A humongous crater in the middle of the city that swallowed the land, um, electric light poles, and a three-story factory. Sinkholes happen when rock is dissolved by seeping water over time. When enough water seeps into uh, rock like this, it will dissolve the, the rock formation and it will collapse and it will create a sinkhole. When land that looks stable on the surface collapses, it creates havoc for everyone around including the security guard that got dropped 330 feet in that factory. Our interior lives can be sinkholes also, sinkholes waiting to happen. When we are too busy to spend time with God, when we refuse to deal with past hurts, habitual sin, secret addictions, or character flaws, we can set ourselves up for a moral collapse. On the surface, we can look stable and secure, but underneath the surface, we are actually quite fragile. It could be the storms of life or just a normal process of everyday living without connection with God. Suddenly, we expose our vulnerabilities, causing a spiritual and relational sinkhole. So beware of a shoddy spiritual life. Your world could collapse. King David in the Old Testament experienced a gigantic spiritual and moral sinkhole that devastated his world and his family. Let me remind you who David is. King David. He was a great king. In fact, many kings are measured by the life of David. David was a shepherd boy, pretty simple beginnings. David is the one who killed Goliath with a sling. Pretty amazing story. It was a God story. David became the armor bearer for King Saul, the first king of Israel, right into uh, the throne, relationship with uh, powerful people. David became a great military leader. He became so popular, he was more popular than the king. David had a heart for God, an amazing heart for God. Uh, He wrote many of the Psalms, may I remind you, 
And some of those words are very passionate about God. He was a godly man. In fact, in Acts 13.22, we read this. After removing Saul, that was the first king of Israel, he, that is God, made David their king. God testified concerning him. I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Kind of impressive. This is what God said about David before 2 Samuel 11. So let's see how David's life unravels. Um, If you read... Here's an amazing thing. The Bible tells the story the way it happened, the real story. If the Bible was just fabricated by men, uh, they would often try to make people look great, a hero like David. Let's just leave out the bad stuff about David. But the Bible just tells it all. And this chapter, when we get to chapter 11, could have been eliminated if you wanted to make David look good. But this is the real David. Yes, David was the great hero. David was extremely popular, but he did some really stupid things that you're going to see this morning. But let me, let me tell you how this thing builds. In, cha- in 2 Samuel, uh, David's life in 2 Samuel is like riding a rocket. He's going like this. The trajectory is just out of sight. In 2 Samuel 2, he becomes the king of Judah, southern kingdom in the land of Israel. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. 2 Samuel chapter 5. This is how the story is developing in the book of 2 Samuel. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. David was the great military leader. And the Lord said to you, David, You will shepherd my people, Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel, northern kingdom. David is now king over all the 12 tribes of Israel. It's not over. Chapter 8, David defeats the Philistines. David defeats the Moabites. David defeats the Ammonites and the Arameans. And uh, chapter 8, verse 5, the end of the verse, the Lord gave David victories wherever he went. Chapter 8, verse 13, and David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Verse 14, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Verse 15, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. David is a good guy. David is a godly man. He's a godly leader. He has a heart for God. Very unique. And then we come to chapter 11. 
Here's the situation. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. This is the only verse in the chapter you get on the screen. In the spring, this is going to be, the whole thing is going to be pretty significant how the story unfolds. At the time when kings go off to war, because that's what kings do in the spring, in the ancient world. Because in the winter, it was the rainy season, and the armies just shut down. It's too hard to travel. It was too hard to feed an army on the road. But in the spring, everything started to dry up. The crops started to come out. There, were food, there was food for the armies. The armies could travel. And kings went with, they were uh, a part of the fighting military. The kings went out with their troops. That was just normal in the day. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So uh, David has been this great leader. And if you read 2 Samuel, it's David, it's David, it's David, because he is leading uh, thousands and thousands of troops. He's talking about the whole army, and it said David did this. Look what happens now. David is extremely powerful and has a lot of authority. What does he do? David sent Joab. It's no longer David leading. He sends somebody to do his job in the military. And David is going to be home at Jerusalem. Okay? Um, So, verses 2 through 5, a problem of success. David is hanging out in his brand new mansion, his brand new palace back in Jerusalem. It's the largest house in the city and uh, pretty likely the tallest house in the city. And so David is just hanging out back there. Uh, You know, he deserves a a time to kick back, a time to sort of take in some of what he's accomplished. And just because he's there isn't necessarily all bad, but it's a little bit unusual. It's out of, it's out of his normal step, his, his normal routine. In verse 2, just looking, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Uh, so David, he's uh, taking a nap in the afternoon, and he gets up in the evening, you know, taking a nap in the afternoon. He's getting up in the evening. He's walking around just seeing all that he's accomplished and establishing this city, and there's a neighbor, and she's taking a bath. I'm guessing, probably no clothes, just a guess there. Scripture doesn't tell us right in this passage, and he sees her. And everything changes. Everything changes. Now, I don't know what the... I'm guessing at about 0.07 seconds, David's heart rate went up. His pulse goes up. His blood pressure goes up. Adrenaline is pumping through his system because of one thing that he saw. This is extremely powerful. It's extremely powerful men. For us, when we see an image like this, and she was very beautiful. 
but he was just looking. That's not enough, though. Verse 3, just checking. David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David has a lot of power and authority. David can send and get things done. And so, what does he do? He sends somebody to Bathsheba. And um, he discovers that she is Bathsheba, and she is a daughter of a very powerful and influential man. And she is also the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David knows this. Um, David knew exactly what he was doing. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21, it says this, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You, you shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And David knew exactly what he was doing when he contacted Bathsheba and began to find out about her. Verse 4, just acquiring, because acquiring is what David did. Read Second Samuel uh, that's all he did was acquired. He acquired troops. He acquired property. Uh, he acquired victories. He just would send and get things done. Then David sent messengers to her, messengers to get her. Verse four. She came to him and he slept with her. This is fast. He he sent. She came. They slept together. And then there's this note. Now, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, and then she went back home. It's all over. It's done. Um, David goes from watching her bathe to getting her to his house, making love to her. Um, That's what the writer means about they slept together. It was a sexual relationship. And the writer also lets us know that she was purifying herself according to the Old Testament law, which was a normal practice after a menstrual cycle. So her menstrual cycle had passed, which meant it was okay for her to have a sexual relationship with her husband. And it also lets everybody know that she's not pregnant by her husband Deuteronomy 5, verse 18, David knows this, you shall not commit adultery. First commandment was don't covet your wife that we looked at. This one says don't commit adultery. David knows this. God has put boundaries on the marriage relationship. He says two should become one. That's a permanent relationship. That was God's plan. And within that, husband and wife uh, are blessed to have a sexual relationship. It was God's design. He's all for good sex, okay? He's all for it. But he put boundaries around the relationship. Boundaries before you get married and boundaries after you get married. So all the focus goes on your mate. And David has violated that. And you know what the penalty is for this in ancient Israel? It's death. Verse 5, just pregnant. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So the sin of adultery has already happened. Probably weeks now have passed. 
you know, they slept together, weeks passed, and now she's pregnant. And that's going to change everything. It will change everything. The pregnancy removes secrecy. There was a secret sin, and now this is going to be, become public. Uh, the pregnancy reveals the truth, what was done in secret. It brings the light into the darkness. And David's now got a new problem, and David has to fix this. But David can do that. He's a powerful man. He has a lot of authority. Look at verses 6 through 11. A problem to cover up. Now David needs to orchestrate circumstances to bring the husband into this situation so that somehow the husband thinks he's the one responsible for his wife's pregnancy. And so his plan, first, deceive husband. Verses 6 and 7. So David sent word to Joab, his military commander, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and the soldiers, how they were and how the war was going. And so this is David's plan. I want to get Uriah back home. I want him to be with his wife. And so Uriah comes. He's a By the way, let me tell you something about Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite means he was a Gentile, means he was not a Jewish man. But he has attached himself to Israel and to David because of his extremely high commitment to the cause. Because um, he honors the God, the true and living God. And because he is sought to serve the army of God in the land of Israel. And he is a highly committed, very high moral character. In fact, if you read the history of Israel, David had hundreds of thousands of troops. Uriah is in the top 33. He is an elite fighting man. And this is who David speaks to. And David makes small talk. Hey, how's it going out there? How's Joab doing? And he starts with the small talk. And so, um, and, you know, he's not being transparent. He's not open and honest in any way. Verses 8 and 9, his plan continues, deceive husband again. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That was kind of a euphemism, wash your feet. You know, go take a bath, go home, get some R&R. Take a bath and uh, be with your wife. He doesn't say that, but Uriah understands exactly what David uh, is indicating here. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. You know, David's going to make this a nice evening to go home. I don't know what he sent. Scripture doesn't say, you know, did he send him food? Uh, What did he send? But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go to his house. Uriah wouldn't do it. Uriah was committed. Here's one of the things that you need to understand about the army in the land of Israel. When they went out to war, when the army moved out, they were totally dedicated to one cause, and that was to serve the army, to serve God, uh, to be dedicated to accomplishing 
their, their, uh, their mission. And whenever the army did that, the scripture is very clear that they were kept from women. There was no sexual relationships allowed, even among married people, when they went out until they came back under authority. And so uh, here we have Uriah, who's given permission by his king to go home. And he won't do it. Not because he's being disobedient, but because of his previous commitment uh, to to his army and to his commander. What's David's plan next? Keep deceiving husband, verses 10 and 11. David was told Uriah did not go home, so he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? You know, most guys would have loved the permission from their king to say, go ahead, go home. Spend some time with the wife, okay? Rest up. And, um, but not Uriah. Verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander, Joab, and my Lord's men, David's men, are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house, eat and drink and make love to my wife? You see, Uriah understood exactly what David had in mind. He wanted him to go home and enjoy his wife. As surely as you live, I will not do such a, such a thing. But Uriah's too focused. He's too committed to his cause. He was a soldier. His troops, troops were living in tents. It would violate um, Uriah's honor. It would break his honor to go home to sleep with his wife. Think about this. Uriah, the Hittite, has way more moral character than David, the man after God's own heart. Deuteronomy 5, verse 20. David knows this. This is the third of the Ten Commandments that David is breaking. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. David has been covering up. He's been deceiving Uriah. He's he's trying to orchestrate circumstances so that Uriah will think something that is false. David's next plan, verses 12 and 13, is to get husband drunk. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. What a fine leader David is. David's thinking, if Uriah has too much to drink, when it's time to go go home, his barrier is going to be down, his guard is going to be dropped, and he's going to want to go home to be with his wife. So he's got a plan, and uh, he is able to get Uriah drunk. Um, but the evening, but in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. At the end of the day, he's still sticking to his moral scruples. He will not sleep with his wife as long as. The army is sleeping in tents. 
he will sleep on the floor at the door of his masters with the masters with the king's servants. He has higher moral character than David. But David's problems are compounding. First it was lust, then it was coveting his neighbor's wife, then it was adultery, then conspiring to cover up his sin, and now he must eliminate the bigger problem. An an uncooperative husband. A problem to eliminate, verses 14 through 24. First, the plan is to kill the husband, verses 14 and 15. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Think about this. The plan is going to be to kill the husband. He's going to send the letter with Uriah. Uriah will carry his own death sentence in verse 15. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out from where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Orchestrate the circumstances, Joab, such that Uriah is close to where the fighting is the absolute worst and then pull the army back so he's alone. And he will be easy prey for the enemy so that he dies. That's the plan. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17. You shall not murder. David knows that. David understands. He knows what he's doing. He is doing stupid and foolish things because he saw a naked woman. This is extremely powerful and dangerous. Verses 16 and 17, the plan to kill the husband is successful. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, notice this, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So just as David planned, the plan was executed. And so was Uriah, just as David had planned. But it gets worse. Because Joab wants to carry out the plan of his commander, King David. Joab has to create a little more realistic he has to leave more than just Uriah out there by himself. That would be obvious, obvious if one of the mighty men were left alone. And so Joab makes sure that a few men, more men, are out there. There's more than one death caused by David's plan. Some of the men of David's army fell. And moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Verses 18 through 21, it keeps going. Plan to break the news. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, but why did you go so close to the city to fight? And so Joab now is prepping the messenger going back to David. And he knows David pretty well. And he knows that David's going to be angry if it looks like a poor decision has been made about the army. And um, Joab is prepping him. And you are to say, didn't you know that they, David might say, didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? And then who killed 
Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth, didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? So David is pulling out an incident that happened in Judges chapter 9 where the army got too close to a wall and somebody was killed by a millstone that got dropped over the side of the wall. Armies know don't get too close to a wall for things like that. So why did this happen? If he asks you this, then say to him, this is the key, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. That's the safe passage phrase right there. And uh, just say, oh, by the way, I'm supposed to tell you about your special servant. I'm sorry to say Uriah the Hittite is dead. Sorry to be the one to break the bad news. And plan to break the news is successful, verses 22 through 24. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us, came out against us, In the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Other innocent men. And here comes the kicker. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Oh, that changes everything. The plan was accomplished. problem is solved. Uriah will not be the jealous husband. Now, think about this. Look how far David has come for sex. Verses 25 through 27. A problem of hypocrisy. David is the hypocrite. Verses 25, words of encouragement. David told the messenger, so he's still in the cover-up, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Tell Job, Job, I understand. It's it's war. And good, good people, good guys die, and bad guys die in war. Don't let that discourage you. And And then he says, press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Job. Job, you're doing okay. Stay the course. Keep at it. Don't let this bother you. Verse 26. Uriah is dead. Uriah is David's elite soldier. Uriah is um, Bathsheba's husband. When Uriah's wife, verse 26, heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. I'm guessing she was really mourning. Maybe she thought about David. Maybe she dreamed about David. Maybe she was glad that David slept with her. But now her husband is dead. And um, yes, there's a formal time of mourning that she has to go through. But she is really in grief. She is now a pregnant and she is a widow. Verses 27, making a new family. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. David, of course, being polite 
and courteous and seeking to honor the life of her husband, Uriah, waits until she goes through a formal time of mourning, months, and then he offers to take her into his home and provide for her the rest of his life. A noble thing that David does. In fact, in some people's eyes, David would have been a hero for doing this. Final verdict, verse 27. The real verdict. But, but, the king, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It's the only time in the chapter that the Lord's name is mentioned. All of the things that David had done displeased the Lord. David didn't get away with it. David now has created a monster moral and spiritual sinkhole. And he will pay the consequences in his own life. His family will pay the consequences. The nation will pay the consequences because of the sinkhole that has happened because of David. The David, David the man after God's own heart, is no longer the hero. He saw his neighbor's wife in the nude. He orchestrated bringing her into his home for sex. He broke his marriage bonds. He broke her marriage bonds. He conspired to cover up his sin. He lied to his loyal soldier. He ordered Uriah to his death. What can we learn? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says this. Do we have 2 Timothy right before this? We don't. Let me read you 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is God-breathed, even 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 27. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God gave us 2 Samuel chapter 11 for our prophet, so we could learn from this. Sin changes people. Sin causes people to go into a cover-up mentality. It It hardens hearts. It produces spiritual callousness, even to people who have a heart after God. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 through 13. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Now, the immediate context is referring to the examples in the Old Testament of God's people under Moses wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. But 2 Samuel 11 applies also as an example from the Old Testament. These things happen to them as examples. Verse 12, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. 2, Corinthians, or 2 Samuel 11 is a warning about moral and spiritual sinkholes. It's a warning for us. Next, next slide there. 
No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, even to David, the great king, the spiritual giant from the Old Testament faced a temptation was pretty simple. He had a choice. He didn't walk away. He walked into it. God would have provided a way out. And God would have been able would have enabled him to endure his temptation and um, honor God. Now there's more to the story. David will be caught. David will pay dearly for the consequences. We're going to see that next week. 2 Samuel chapter 12. But let this uh, story be a wake-up call for sloppy living. Let this story bring attention to the institution of marriage as God designed it. It's one man, one woman. And God... uh, blesses the sexual relationship between one man and one woman for life, okay? God has put boundaries around that relationship. Before marriage, the Bible uses the term uh, fornication for sexual relationship before marriage. And outside of marriage, the Bible uses the word adultery. Um. Let married couples focus on growing their marriages and not tearing them down. You know, life is so busy and it takes so much energy to do life. It's just so easy to let your marriage slide. And I just want to encourage you to build, take time for your relationship, focus on each other, uh, build the love in your relationship, keep, keep dating, do those things that bring joy to your relationship. And it takes a lot of energy, and it takes time, and it takes resources to do that, but it has to be your priority. And may all of us live as sexual beings under the Lordship of Christ. Let me, uh, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. This is for all of us. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in the passionate lust like pagans who do not know God. That's God's will for you and for me. There's a lot more we can be, can be said about this subject. But I'm going to say some of them for next week. Um, so, let's leave it with this. Secrets. David had secrets. Do you have secrets? Do you have things that you try to keep from God? Uh, do you have things that you need help with? Do you have things that you need accountability for? Do you need to share something with a mate? Do you need to share something with a friend to help you and will pray for you? Um, this is serious stuff. We, we live in an extremely volatile and intense sexual climate. And um, 
Marriage is just coming undone. Marriage is under attack. And one of the amazing things is um, it, I get, it's extremely disappointing to me that Christian men so easily get hooked into pornography. Uh, I personally have a great deal of experience with it, way too much. And it just uh, devastates the home. The Christian male becomes the weakest link in the church because of their spiritual ineptness, because this little secret. And it affects homes, it affects marriages, and we just live like everybody else. So, secrets. Let's pray. God, thank you for the story in 2 Samuel 11. It's uh, very sad to see how a godly man was sort of led like a lamb to slaughter. It was like a a fish uh, to a lure, and he did it all without thinking. And then um, it just got worse. God, may this just be a a reminder. May it be a wake-up call for us. May we not be sloppy about spiritual things. May we not be sloppy about following Christ. May we not be sloppy with our sexuality, for Jesus' sake. Amen.